from working at Stanford in the catering department to working as a self-taught sysadmin at Blockstream to author hoping to bring clarity to the Bitcoin hype train, our guest today, Kiara Bickers, is building a career at the center of one of today's hottest trends, cryptocurrencies. So whether you are into Bitcoin or think cryptocurrency isn't quite ready for prime time, there are a lot of really interesting career opportunities and challenges in this emerging field. So be sure to stay tuned as we catch up with Kiara Bickers and learn how she is crafting a career at the center of a potentially revolutionizing new technology. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at Developmentor. Kira, welcome to Developmentor. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Now, as I understand it, you just uh, moved from the the windy city Chicago to Austin. What's that been like moving during the middle of the pandemic for you? <laughs> well, you know, we uh, we drove over here. I think the moving truck broke down at least five or six times. Oh, wow. So that posed an additional challenge of like trying to use restrooms and you have to wear this mask. And it was just like a whole ordeal. I suppose we could have flown, but yeah, it's been, it, it was the peak craziness. So it was just uh, like basic things are suddenly really difficult. Yeah. And I imagine too, I mean, I moved right before the pandemic and it's just, you know, like I, I've been in Charlotte now for over a year, but it's just, there's parts of it that feel like home. And then there's still parts that I'm like, wait, I do I really live here? <laughs> Just because like it's been so shut down during the pandemic. I imagine that's probably more even more so since you actually moved during the pandemic. Well, I think a lot of like coming from Chicago, more things are open here in Texas. That being said, it's kind of like it's still not normal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it's well, fun. I, I I found some good places that are, um, you know, outdoor spaces. And it, that to me feels like the most comfortable where it's like, okay, nobody here has to wear a mask because we're outside. And yeah, it's been it's been nice that way. Very different in Chicago. It's too cold. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Well, especially in a city, though, that's built around music and live music in particular. Uh, you know, I can imagine that's got to be pretty hard on a lot of people there. I think so, too. It's, it's hard for a lot of people because I actually don't know any different. I think I'm probably adjusting better. <laughs> Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, hey, let's kick things off. And, you know, I gave a little bit of a teaser in there, but I am i know there's more to the story here. So I would love to have you introduce yourself to our audience by taking a moment to have you tell us how you got your start in tech and how you've approached your tech education. I mentioned, you know, the self-taught in there. I'd love to just hear like Kiara's getting into tech story. Yeah. So as you mentioned, like I was working as a catering server at Stanford. I had that job pretty much out of high school for like three years. And it was, I, di I didn't go to college, but I was working at a college. So I sort of had this interesting experience where 
you know, I was getting paid and it, it certainly wasn't really studying, but because I lived in Oakland at the time, um, I had a one hour commute there and back. So I would drive from Oakland to Stanford and it would be really early in the morning and it was just like a lot of traffic. And I would listen to podcasts uh, during that drive every day, you know, twice a day for three years. And I would listen to these economic podcasts and, you know, I sort of taught myself just through following my interests. If you can even really call that teaching, I don't know. I just pursued my own interests. Um, and the job really gave me the opportunity to do that in sort of this weird roundabout way of like listening to podcasts during a commute. And it, it also gave me this opportunity to like go to lectures and like hang out around campus and like talk to random professors about things. It was it was an interesting experience. And, you know, after three years, I was like, hmm, this is a job. Like, I think I should probably think about a career. Like, what am I going to do? You know, like my frontal lobe is starting to come in and I'm like, "Mm, I think I need to like actually do something more meaningful. Uh, This this was just a temporary gig that turned into a three year stint. So I started thinking about like what I was interested in. At the same time, uh, Bitcoin had been around for a couple of years already and was kind of on my radar because I had been listening to these economic podcasts. I really wanted to understand Bitcoin. And at that time, which is like about 2012, everyone who I knew who knew something about Bitcoin was in tech. So I would like approach my friends who were studying CS and they'd be like, oh, you want to understand Bitcoin? You should learn how to code. I was like, "Hmm, okay, I guess I should. (laughs) Like that's what multiple people had independently told me. So I thought that would be a good idea. Spent a couple years learning C++ to some kind of elementary degree, took like a boot camp taught myself outside of the boot camp. So at this point, it's like C++. I learned Objective-C, Swift, learned some website stuff, a little bit of Python. I was sort of like jack of all trades. And my whole approach to that was uh, I would find projects in the Bitcoin space that I thought were interesting. Like there, at the time, there it didn't. there's this concept of like a paper wallet and there didn't exist a paper wallet app. So I was like, oh, cool. Like I'll just like make my own little paper wallet app and put it in the app store until I had like a collection of like random little projects like this. Did I hear right? Like, so you're, you're working in catering at Stanford and then are you just like dropping in on classes? Like, are you, you know, like, like, I mean, is this like a way to get like to hack a Stanford education instead (laughs) of work there or what? Like, are we formally registering? Uh, no. So it, it was, um, I wasn't formally registered in anything, uh, but there were classes that didn't require that you be a student that you could legitimately register for mm-hmm. and take. I took like a grant writing class on campus and stuff like that. Uh, which I don't think that's ever really going to be useful for me, but I was, I thought I was going to end up in the sciences. So I thought it might've been, um, but no, I, it was mostly like I would end up in lectures because they were being catered. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like when you work at a sports arena, you get to watch the game. Yeah, exactly. And I, sometimes I'd work at the football games and it was, it was really mixed. I'd work at the professor's houses. I'd work at the dean's houses and like a sort of like fly on the wall sort of thing. And then when there were Bitcoin events on campus, I would make a deliberate effort to go because like I knew they were happening. Whereas, you know, if you weren't working there, you might not know. So, so it was mostly students and teachers, but because I was sort of like a part of the community, I just knew that they were happening. So I would attend and there was nothing wrong with that. I got a Stanford like email address, which would let me email people and they would actually respond. So <laughs> I used that one a few times because I would like ask people questions and like I'd have the Stanford email address and, and they would they would answer my weird question. They'd be like, are you a student? I'm like, no. Okay, this is a little awkward now. <laughs> 
this is like, you know, I don't know whether <laughs> what to even, this just feels like one of those ultimate life hacks, right? Of like, It felt getting, that way for sure. Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't something that was normal within the catering department. I'll also say that there was only one student who worked in the department. It was, you know, probably like 50 or 60 people. So it wasn't normal. And like people did think it was a little weird. They're like, oh, Kiara, like you just finished working and like you're going to go to an event on campus. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> why not? That's fast. Well, so was there some, you know, was there a precursor to all of this, like in high school or anything like that? I mean, yeah, you know, I could go back just- a little further. So yeah, in high school, I was just a terrible student. And it was, it was sort of rough for me because I have always been sort of a, like a self teacher, like a, a, an autodidact, like I have a hard time accepting someone else's curriculum as legitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought about studying CS and then I would look at like the coursework for that. And I'm like, do I really need to know how to build a compiler to like do, to do that? Uh, Like to do what I want to do. So my approach has always been like, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? What information do I need to accomplish that? And it, it, I understand the, the value of a, like a certification, but I didn't understand the value of all the hoops within the certification. So, and that was true even in high school and it was really hard to get me to do any work. So I ended up joining like this, it was, it's called like an independent study program that really was meant for more of people who were like professional athletes because then they couldn't attend normal school, but I convinced Mm -hmm. them to like allow me to come. So I created my own curriculum for high school and then I would meet with the teacher once a week and then he would just like, you know, say if it was good or not. Oh, that's so fascinating. So like this is your high school is is crafting this independent ex- study experience. Oh, yeah. That was really wonderful when I got to do that. It was like my first shot at like intellectual freedom because I picked what it was that I was interested in. It's like if I had to study history, I could sort of decide how I wanted to approach that topic. So if I was like, you know, say I, at the time I was interested in money and economics, I would just study the economics of history at the time that was required by the by the state. So the state says you have to study the Middle Ages. It's like, okay, I'll study the Middle Ages, but like, I'll do it my way. And my teacher was fine with that. That's so fascinating. I know like my senior year, I crafted some, some of that in high school, maybe half of my classes were independent study where I could pursue, but it's not a very common approach to, to learning. Most, you know, most of the time you just want to get it done. Right. But this is so fascinating. So, so I, I'm hearing and getting the economics side of the equation. And, and effectively, if I heard you right, what you're saying, the, the programming side just simply came out of as you explored this Bitcoin space, which had fascinated you from an economic side, you, you then dove into the coding. What was that like to just teach? And, you know, first of all, you, you pick one of the hardest languages to learn as well, C++. Well, like, that's because that's what Bitcoin was written in. So I thought that's what uh, I needed to, do to understand it. And, you know, drill in on this for me a little bit. What was that like for you learning C++? I guess now as somebody, now that you've explained a little bit more your your guided, you know, your, your self-guided tour, but how did you actually approach it? Like, what are some practical things you did to learn C++? Yeah, so I figured, well, if I were ever going to get a job in this space without having like an actual certification, you know, I, I did hear of this concept of being self-taught you know, if you can prove competence, like most people, it's, it's, it's getting your foot in the door type of thing. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just take the hardest, you know, I'll take already reputable classes that were online and then just do those. And mm. I, and I did that for 
two years and I got, but the problem was at the end of the two years, because I basically gave my, like I did in high school, right? I created a curriculum for myself. I found the best teachers that taught that subject. And then I did the coursework. Now, like, of course, I'm not being graded and I have to hold myself accountable and all that stuff. But at the end of it, which was really disappointing was the fact that like, after I had gone through all this work of like doing years curriculum, and I was starting to become obvious, but you know, I, I waited a full year. It's like, oh, even after a year, you're not good enough to actually know anything about Bitcoin yet. It was like sort of awkward, right? Because you spend this whole time learning something because you think it's going to help you understand this complex system. And then after that year, I was like, cool, like I know how to write some simple stuff, but I still don't understand this like really complex body of work. Like meaning the math side of it or meaning oh, the, just the like, underneath? Like, like I would have needed someone to sit down and explain the code base to me and like exp- with some context. So like sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but like one of the things that I learned when I started working in the space is that Bitcoin is actually modeled off of an earlier, the, the smart contract link, language inside of it is modeled after an older programming language called Forth. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of context, th- I needed the, the the map to understand the territory sort of thing. Gotcha. Well, and so this is maybe a good segue to my, what was going to be my second question, which is normally, you know, we dive into a bunch of questions about you and your career, but I think it would actually be helpful for our audience. I think we've maybe had one other Bitcoin crypto person on, uh, before in in my series here. So I would love for you to lay out a little bit of what are some of the key ideas and definitions around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for our audience so so that, you know, perhaps we have some context going yeah. forward. Yeah, I can you know, explain that. a little. So like most people just know Bitcoin as like magic internet money, right? And <laughs> when I was trying to understand Bitcoin, I was really trying to understand like how and why it worked like, why wasn't it invented sooner? Like these sort of like deeper questions that you don't really just necessarily, you don't necessarily get that just by like reading the code. And, you know, what I, what I've come to understand about Bitcoin is that the, the really big value prop is that it's censorship resistant. And it was the first really successful attempt to do like maybe his, some historical context is useful here. Like people will remember the peer to peer craze where, you know, you'd share files in this peer-to-peer fashion, well, Bitcoin was the first technology that was able to establish a way of transferring value in a peer-to-peer way and make it scarce. And then that, in, in, and make it censorship resistant. And then you have all these other things that kind of come after those premises, which is like, well, it's also really hard to stop or shut down. So there were, there were a couple of attempts to make a sort of uh, libertarian coin, if you were to call it that. But because they were centralized, they would always be shut down by the government. So this was really the minimum amount like, of decentralization needed to achieve uh, a, a financial system that couldn't be stopped. It couldn't, that's what I mean when I say couldn't be censored, right? Censorship resistant. It means like it, it, ju- it, Bitcoin exists and it's very difficult to sh- shut something like that down because of the way it's decentralized. Right. And then, you know, real quick for our listeners, the scarcity side of it. I mean, I think intuitively we all get it, but then we also see, you know, the government prints money left and right, right? So why does the scarcity side matter? Yeah, well, the scarcity side is what gives us all the collective hallucination of value. It's like, you know, why do people value gold? And it's because it's scarce, right? So people often ask me, it's like, well, what is Bitcoin backed by? And I'm like, well, it doesn't need to be backed by anything because it's scarce, just like gold is scarce. Uh, But and that's, yeah, that's another aspect of Bitcoin that was that was really interesting and unique and isn't true of other cryptocurrencies. 
Um, there's right. like other cryptocurrencies just have their own properties and are totally different systems, which is something that people who uh, probably like who don't know much about cryptocurrencies might not know automatically. Yeah. Well, and, and see, now I want to just get into a fun debate about gold, but we'll, we'll not go there because I, I don't <laughs> personally, val- I personally don't value it because like, because exactly like it, it has no meaning other than the one we ascribe to it. So we can, we can, to your point though, we can ascribe that meaning to anything. Yep. So, but all right. Breaking well, so the hallucination of what money is like, that was yeah. really interesting about Bitcoin to me. La, 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 la. Don't tell anybody, Kira. <laughs> All currency is backed by faith. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will have a follow-up episode on Bitcoin, I'm sure. Okay. Kiara, so you lay a little bit of the groundwork, and I'm sure we'll get into it more here, especially once we start talking about your book. You've established you're a project-based learner as well as a self-guided, self-taught one, which I, there's so many ways we could follow up there. But I would love to, you know, bring this back concrete, which is you mentioned it's often the case in tech that you can get a job if you can prove you have a body of work. How did you go about actually doing that? And how did you land that first job? How did you prep for the interview? Yeah. All of these things. That's a really good question. So um, really I was quite worried about that when I was studying tech because I was like, I knew the first job would be the hardest. And I was sort of trying to figure out like how my career would, like I was trying to create a lane for myself. So like, okay, I know a little bit of C++, but it wasn't enough to be, you know, ex- like extremely competent in the subject. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just do objective C, do make some apps because those could be easily project-based and then attempt to get a job as like an iOS developer. Mm. Um, but what ended up happening is I was, I would just keep, I kept going to Bitcoin events and I was just like ranting about Bitcoin to anyone who would listen. And then I remember this, there was a older gentleman who was around and he was, uh, not, he was taking the class. It was, this was like a, a cryptocurrency blockchain class type thing. It was really informal. It was just like a get together on the weekend, but we sort of called it loosely called it a class cause it had speakers. And he would ask the best questions in the whole room every single time. And I would make an effort to sort of like hang out with this guy. We started carpooling together. And then, you know, I told him, I was like, you know, have you ever heard of this thing called PGP? And he just sort of like laughed at me. He's like, yes, of course I've heard of that. And then I like pull out this book that's like written by the the guy who wrote, who wrote that uh, protocol, uh, Phil Zimmerman, I think is anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I pull out this book and I explained to him, I was like, wow, this stuff is really broken, huh? Like this web of trust stuff is really broken. And he's like, that's so weird that like, who, like, why would, who, who's so passionate about this stuff that you're just like reading the book on it from ages ago. And from the, pers- from his perspective, it's like, how weird is it that people are hearing about cryptocurrency before everything else that came in cryptography? Yeah. So it was just a little bit of a trip, I think for him. So anyway, we became friends and he's like, hey, like I need a website for a conference that I'm doing. Do you want to do that? I was like, yeah, like n- no problem. And I would just offer to do this stuff because he was asking me and it, it, it was uh, it wasn't hard for me to do. And I didn't mind. It took me a couple of hours. Right. And uh, then he created a role for me the second that he got hired at this company. So when the company was created, uh, he knew that he wanted to hire me as an intern and he went out of his way to like really make, he made me the first intern. He created the job for me. I kind of shadowed everyone at the company and um, yeah, so it was, it was really nice, but it, it was sort of like an informal mentorship sort of thing. 
Oh, it's fantastic. I love those stories. And just, just based off of the fact that you just kept showing up at, at you know, essentially meetups and, and yep. asking questions and engaging with the audience, you know, with, with no pretense in some regards, right? Yeah, like I was just genuinely interested and like I didn't have an ulterior motive. Like I wasn't like trying to get a job out of him or anything. I was just like just interested and remained interested about the topic, I think, in a very pure sense that people can appreciate. Yeah, that's fantastic. Especially when you're young. You're, I think young people, you know, th their role is sort of to bring energy. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I just had like youthful excitement. <laughs> no, I love it. That's, that's fantastic. That's uh, Yes, that's every young person's role at a meetup is to bring energy. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's just go with that. Well, so then as I understand it, you know, you see these days you've got two primary roles. You know, one is this day job as a sysadmin for Blockstream. And the second is the author of Bitcoin Clarity. Starting off with the first and, you know, without, of course, talking about your employer too much, you know, C++ programmer, iOS programmer, it doesn't exactly lead to sysadmin. No, it sure doesn't. How does, how did that transition happen? And then more, and then also with it, like explain a bit more about what you are doing as a sysadmin. Yeah. So when I started at that company, my, my role was an intern. So it was sort of like intentionally undefined what my responsibilities were, because that's what internships kind of are, at least in some cases. So I didn't come on as like an iOS developer, but we have like the company had apps and stuff like that. But we also had we had other, we had many things. It's like, you know, when you start a really small startup, it's kind of more about the people than it is about the hat they wear. And the mm -hmm. company was just at that phase at that time. And then when the internship was sort of coming to an end and I was applying to jobs and all this stuff, they said, hey, like, we know this is sort of like random and not what you like, you know, taught yourself to do, but this is sort of the role that we need. Like, do you want to do that? And they offered me that position and it just happened to be a better offer than things with iOS or app. And, and, and really, like, I was passionate about cryptocurrency. I really loved working with the people at this company. And again, without, without talking about the company too much, uh, Bitcoin is open source, so developers don't get paid to work on Bitcoin. But this company made an effort to go out of their way and hire, I would say, a lot of the Bitcoin core developers um, to to just, just pay them to work on it. So it, it was a really cool company culture where there were many people in this space that were there not working on anything the company was formally doing, just working on Bitcoin. And that was just a part of the culture from the beginning. And I guess I just, you know, I just wanted to be a part of that, even if it meant that it wasn't in the role that I had actually taught myself anything about. And they were, you know, very flexible and like, let me, you know, learn how to be a sysadmin on the job. And so define that a little bit more because, you know, like I think we've had SREs on site reliability engineers, you know, people have probably heard DevOps. I mean, in many ways, I think of sysadmin is like the original of those. It but, is. Yeah. You it know, is. what does it mean practically for you? Well, for the, on the, for the context of your podcast, I'll also say that a lot of people who are sysadmins, like a lot of them don't have traditional role. Like they don't have a traditional background. Most people don't go to school to become a sysadmin. Right. So it, it, it sort of worked in that way. So because we're a, a Bitcoin company, like we ended up self-hosting a lot of things. So what that means for, you know, people in DevOps and this side of things, it's like we run all the servers for our company, but we also run 
every service that would you would use internal to a company. So like your internal chat service, the external facing services, like we have to manage all of those. So that's kind of what the role is. It's also like IT help. It's also, it's it's just sort of, it's just a kind of a weird role to explain for people who don't really think about the chat service they use at work and who's managing it. Right. So this is a combination of at a bigger company, you're doing both IT and say site reliability DevOps. You're, you're, you're both running the services that run the, the product, but you're also doing the IT help desk, kind of helping people with their yes. laptop issues and all and, that. Stuff. And to like add to what you're saying, run, run the, the servers that run the product. We have all these internal services that need to be run because we don't use any third party service. Like we wouldn't use a Slack. We wouldn't, we, we just like run all these different services for developers. And we, so it, that ends up being a lot of the role too. Gotcha. No, it's so fascinating. And, and and if I'm hearing you correctly, this was literally like, Hey, we have this role open. Are you, and we're willing to teach you. We, we like you because you've proven yourself as an intern and here's the only role we have. Yep. And then now that's four years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, so then bring that forward. Like, how has that evolved for you? I mean, obviously, there's something about it you really like. and It actually isn't quite obvious to me. So I'm actually in a weird situation in my career because I don't know that I'll continue to pursue sysadmin and DevOps. You know, I took this as an opportunity to learn something new and work at a company that I really liked. And it was always more about the company for me than the role. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoy working in the cryptocurrency space or specifically the Bitcoin space. And what I made it my job to do while I was working my day job is I was having all these fascinating conversations with what I would have considered like the top security people in the space, the top cryptographers. Like it was so fun for me. And I would just go out to lunch with them and like take notes about our conversations at lunch about cryptocurrency. And I wanted to sort of brain drain them, like take all of the knowledge out of their brain, organize it in a way that non-technical people could understand and make that into a book. So I've spent a lot of my, t- my time at the job sort of doing that. Um, I think the book took like a year to write. You know, I think now having written a book, I realized a lot more about myself is that I have these sort of like hard skills and soft skills. And my my future role will probably look more like probably not be in DevOps in the future. Like, yeah, yeah. it almost starts to feel like developer advocate territory. But you're so let's pause there for a second. Tell us a bit more about the book, you know, the name, who's it for the audience? Yeah. Like what's required for somebody to pick up this book? Do they need to know C++? All of the, <laughs> well, all of the kinds of things that go into to your book. Right. Well, actually, this podcast is great because I've already described my whole like experience of starting getting into Bitcoin. And that was the background that made me want to write the book because I was like, oh, I spent all this time learning how to code because my nerd friends told me to learn how to code and it objectively wasn't useful for helping me understand the code. Like it might have been had I had I been coding for years and years and years and years, you know, but it wasn't like that. Like you can't just learn how to how to code a little and then like expect to know really complex stuff about it. At least that was my experience. And I also saw that like people were having a hard time because every time someone goes, well, what is Bitcoin? they would just be met with this wall of overly technical explanations. So the book is a product of my experience and, and meant for the type of person that was in the same situation I was in, where I couldn't actually understand the value prop of Bitcoin unless I understood something about how it worked. That doesn't mean I needed to know all of cryptography. It just needs 
it means I need to know the minimum amount of cryptography that would get me to believe that it's possible for digital scarcity to exist in a safe way. What the problem was in a lot of the explanations I was reading online about Bitcoin is that they would just, you know, someone asks, well, what is Bitcoin? And then they go into this whole chapter explanation on cryptography. And it's like way too deep. It goes into the historical context. It just didn't make any sense that that, that kept happening. And I think it, it's mostly because people who are interested in this stuff are very analytical. So I wanted to take all the analytical people that I knew and sort their thoughts for a person who's not like them. So the book is really meant for, it's the most technical book for a non-technical audience. There's no code in it. At no point do I ever show you what a hash looks like. And it has some empathy for the, for the reader, which I felt that a lot of these, you know, Bitcoin explanations didn't because, because they're trying to explain a technical concept and not everyone is, is technical. So the phrase that I use is mental models instead of code. Like I really wanted to explain Bitcoin in mental models instead of code. Instead of showing you hashes or pulling out lines of code, I wanted to just explain it in a visual way. So I had like, this is a problem in this space, but a lot of the explanations on Bitcoin, when they go to put a diagram in place, uh, they'll just take diagrams from technical documents and then like put that in a news link. You know, when they're explaining how the blockchain works with hashes and they take the, it's everyone's taking the same photos. And instead, I wanted to completely uh, redo the way that it could be explained. And I had an artist come in and create all new illustrations for it. And I start the book like this, like, everyone knows about cryptocurrency, everyone knows about blockchains now, but does anyone know why there are blocks? And like, most people that I talked to, I, I didn't know why there are blocks on a blockchain before I started working at this company. It's like, well, I understand why there's a chain, but like, why are there blocks? And these seemingly simple questions are just never asked. And the, the reason why this is sort of important, especially at the time, you know, 2017 and stuff, is Bitcoin's not the only cryptocurrency. And what a lot of cryptocurrencies do is they'll take a technical thing. They'll say like, oh, well, Bitcoin is really slow. Ours is faster. And if you don't understand why Bitcoin is slow or why it's exactly the speed that it is in terms of processing transactions, you're going to just default to trusting the, wh whoever is talking to you, right? So if someone says this blockchain is faster, well, if you don't understand the technical argument, you'll just believe them and think that that one's better. And, you know, there was this whole incident in Bitcoin that where Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And I saw a lot of non-technical people sell all their Bitcoin for Bitcoin Cash because they sort of position themselves um, at the intersection of economics and technicals. They would say like, oh, well, this is a technical issue or, oh, this is an economic issue and take advantage of people's misunderstanding about what was actually going on under the hood. So that's at least why I wrote it. And I could talk a little bit more about how I organized my thoughts in there. But just to say it simply, the idea was really to, to download the mental models in the cryptographer's heads and then give people the metal, mental models for understanding without having to get into the weeds of like how many bits something is. I just had this aha moment where I've heard the word blockchain, I don't know how many times, and I don't know why it's a block. I mean, I think I, I think I could hazard a guess, but take a moment and explain. Yeah. So actually, interestingly enough, this relates to Wikipedia in a way, because the guy who taught me this, the developer who taught me this, he used to work at Wikipedia and he said when they were thinking about, well, how could we make Wikipedia decentralized? Uh, he said it was fundamentally impossible because 
because of the relativity of time. And you, so imagine like I have a, I have this all illustrated in the book, but because if you wanted to have a decentralized network, meaning that you have servers all over the world, if, if, a, if two people create a transaction at the same time, but like one's in the US and one's in Australia, when did that transaction actually occur? W- knowing when that transaction actually occurred is really impossible to do because there's no central authority for time stamping the transaction. And you, what the ledger is meant to do is not just give it a timestamp, but it's really to put transactions in order. Because if you if, if we make transactions at the same time, what if like... If I send if I send funds to somebody, we need to know that I no longer have those funds and then he has them before he can send before he's allowed to spend them. Right? We needed this way to make it uh, final. And the block is what groups all of the transactions at a relative time. So instead of saying, okay, this transaction, going back to the example of two transactions, one in the US and one in Australia, there's no way to know in a decentralized way if they if they happened, like, w- there's no way to know which happened first or to put them in order, you know, especially if they happened at exactly the same time. So what the innovation of the blockchain does, which what the, the developer I'm speaking of, his name is Greg Maxwell, uh, he, he, what, what he didn't realize was that, oh, instead of putting the timestamp on the transaction, you could put it on a block of transactions and then say, regardless of, you know, ordering it in the block, because the order in the block doesn't matter, we'll say everything that happened at roughly this time is now timestamped. And then you can move on and say like, well, those are those transactions are final now. So the goal of blocks is pretty much to solve the latency problem and to give the transactions a final order. Mm, I love it. That's so fascinating. Uh, like I said, I, I've heard the name and I kind of knew it, but not in that level. So I appreciate very much you taking. All right. So coming back on all of this, you, so you've written this book, I believe it's self-published as well, right? Yeah. And actually, I just want to say one more thing about that topic. I'll yep. say that Satoshi, so this is the guy who like created Bitcoin, the sort of anonymous, synonymous, whatever creator of Bitcoin, when he wrote the initial white paper, he referred to the blockchain as a a decentralized timestamp server. And really, like, I think instead of blockchain, it should be called time chain. Mm. Because I think that illustrates the point way better, because in my mind, the blocks are arbitrary. And it's the the, uh, what the blockchain is actually doing is it's a decentralized clock. And it's using its own internal mechanism to keep time. And that's the very first chapter of the book. And that's what I mean by mental models. Like I'm giving you the mental models to understand like, why does this work? Yeah, it's so fascinating. Because, yeah. you know, one of my next questions is just going to be, if a reader learns nothing else from your book, what is the one thing you hope they will take away from it? Yeah, that's absolutely it. That, that's probably the big one. Well, I guess that's not an overarching point, right? That's just a mental model. So the overarching point is that... Uh, Bitcoin is censorship resistance there. You can choose whether you value that, you know, I can, that that's a little bit more of a personal or political topic to say whether or not censorship resistance is a good thing. I know people are trying to bring this into like social media and all kinds of other stuff, but yeah, let me, let me rephrase this too and say 
Bitcoin is censorship resistant, but it's also this huge opportunity to take full control and and responsibility over your finances, which is such an interesting value proposition. Also, like working in the space, like managing your own keys, like managing your own private keys is incredibly difficult. Having funds that no one can seize from you because it's censorship resistant, it's just like this huge responsibility. And I don't think we've ever had a more interesting opportunity as far as money goes in history. I hope that's a, a better sell on Bitcoin than number go up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fascinating. I know I've I've heard various talks on this subject going into more of these philosophical questions as well. And I think you hit on a really interesting point. And, and it's like you also have to ask yourself the question, you know, do I trust myself to be able to do these things and yes. take care of them and, and care and feed for them? Because it is not trivial either, nope. right? I mean, there is some benefit to outsourcing that to – even if you don't fully trust it, a, a third party like a government. So. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of value that third parties do. Uh, yeah. And that I wouldn't want to undermine that, which is something that, you know, sil- it, it's sort of silly, but because the blockchain exists, everyone wants to put everything on a blockchain without any thought as like what the benefit of being able to reverse transactions or mediate disputes might be. Why write a book at all? I mean, this is a, this is a lot of work, right? That's I a mean, good question. Yeah. Like, wh- why did you want to do this? So the the project started out when I was with some coworkers. It was, they, they were sort of more on the research end of the company. So they like not working on the company's products, but just sort of contributing to Bitcoin. And they were, they're both developers on Bitcoin and they were just sort of ranting and saying, yeah, like there really isn't a good book on Bitcoin period, because a lot of these books kind of make themselves to look like technical, like they're sort of like a technical book, but none of the technical people read those books and then all the non-technical people read them and they don't really make any sense to them. So it was sort of a challenge based on, based on like getting together with a couple coworkers and they were just like, Oh, none of these books, like none of these books are good. And it's really unfortunate that people are being misled in this way. And I was like, Oh, well I'll write one. And then we just ended up talking once a week and I kind of, you know, learned as I went. It was it was a project for me to learn more as well and really crystallize my thoughts because, you know, these things can be hard to explain verbally. And when you write something down, you really get to understand a system yourself. Like when you do research on a time period or whatever it is, when you write a book, you're you're teaching yourself in that process. You're teaching yourself how to speak about it in a way, at a, at a, a deeper level. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You know, one of the best ways to learn, of course, is to teach. Now, did you set out in your life? Was this a life goal or something? Or did you just, hey, I'm in the moment and kind of that self-guided aspect of you coming forward? Well, I might not have written the book if I had known exactly how much effort it was going to (laughs) be. Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, but you know, I'm glad I did it. It was very positive. I get good feedback on it. And you know, it, 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 it's really rewarding to see people read it and especially people who are new to the space and be like, Whoa, or, or people who have been in the space for years. And they're like, how did I never know that? Because I have all these like cool inside little secrets from cypherpunks that I get to just like drop in a footnote. And like, that's really fun for me. Um, it, I, I wouldn't say it was like a life goal. I'm really interested in, in writing in general. So I'm right now I'm working on a totally separate project that has to do with rewriting old myths. And I'm trying to create like a, a chronology of, of all of history where one story, like basically you read one story and then that story is necessary for understanding the next. And I want to go through like all of human history like this. 
maybe it's a little ambitious and maybe I'll regret that one too, but I just like writing. Uh, I mean, you know, that might, might take, you know, a day or two to write. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might, but you know, I, I, I think it'll be really fun. So if it takes me two years and if I, if I hate it at the end, that's one of the problems of being an artist too, is you, there's sort of like this bittersweet thing when a project ends and you're just like, it ends when you're sick of it. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, well, and I love the fact that just to pick up here now is you called yourself an artist as well. So you've got day job as sysadmin and you've got kind of the, the work-life balance thing going, if you will. It reminds me of another uh, earlier guest we had who was, you know, daytime creative director and, and nighttime artist, if you will. How do those different aspects of your personality show up and how you think about your career? That's a great question. I think I'm, I think I'm a hard person to hire, <laughs> but I think if I if I'm in the right role, it's so valuable. And the reason why I say I'm hard to hire, it's not like I'm, I'm it's not like I don't love to contribute. I produce a lot of value at companies that I, I that would hire me, you know. But the issue is really how do you, pe- you people people and companies are looking for specific roles. They're not no, you don't fit in the box. I don't fit a box. So like, you know, even when you said developer advocate, I was like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. I'm going to Google that after this. Uh, yeah, I don't fit a box very well. So it can be hard. But when I, I think, you know, if I find the right company, um, it can work out. So when I'm thinking about my career in the future, I always think about it as what company do I want to work at? Because like one of the things that I thought I really learned with learning how to code and being interested in Bitcoin, I really do believe that what you code is a reflection of your values in the same way that what I write is a reflection of my values. And I'll be the most motivated in a system where, where I, I believe in the product fully. So it's not like I'll just take any job um, that, that I'm, I'm not just like a sysadmin that's going to go to another company and be just like another sysadmin. Like I need to work at a company where I feel that my values are in full alignment. How would you, what practical advice would you give somebody as to how to align those? I mean, there's, you know, there's a certain aspect of sometimes you just need a job because you need a job. hundred percent. Right? I mean, but, you know, once perhaps you get past that or, or, or you're in a better position, like how did you go about determining those things? Yeah. Like, I think like what you said is that sometimes you just need a job, but a job is different. A job is not a career, right? Like a job is a sort of replaceable thing that, you, you can, you just, you just have one or you don't. And then most people have jobs. Very few people actually have careers. So I don't know if I could really articulate advice, but the way that I think about it is I am ruthlessly going to pursue my curiosities because that's always ended me in the right place. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for me. It was, it was hard for me in a way to just study Bitcoin while I was working at, you know, as a catering server, because I, there was not a clear path at all. There was no point where I was like, this is exactly where I'm going to work. And this is what's going to happen. In fact, the company didn't even exist yet. So like, it wouldn't have been possible for me to do that. Um, I just, yeah, I just w- stayed ruthlessly curious and like learned everything I could about the topic. Um, definitely talking to people like, who are interested in the same things, you know, people call that networking, but maybe that's kind of a dirty <laughs> word. I don't know. I just, I hung out with people who that's were interested me. in the same things and things just work out. Yeah. It's definitely not a dirty word. It's in fact a superpower. I, I love it because, you know, I think I see this a lot as in my own career as well as just, I've always followed my curiosity and, 
and versus like maybe not to put it in contrast, but you know, you, you see different people making different choices in their careers depending on different things that they care about. And for me, this is the one that has always rung true is like, I'm going to follow the things that are interesting, even if they don't necessarily fit with, you know, some other notion of, of what my work should be. So I I really appreciate you bringing that forward. A hundred percent. And I would just add to that and say, I don't know that I would ever get a job just by like not showing up at a place and showing my resume, like and applying to a job online. Like I don't think that I don't think that would work for me. It never has in the past. That, that works for jobs doesn't work for a person like me in a career like mine. And I think the way that I go about it is if I like a company and if you know, I'll I'll probably just try and get to know the people who already work there. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You know, in fact, I was just looking at my list of questions here, and, and one of them was, "What's something about you and your career that isn't obvious when looking at your resume?" But I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is there's so many things, right? Like you've got, uh, you know, you, you you've been at Blockstream, you've published a book, but there's so many underlying things around your values and philosophy that are are fascinating in terms of building a career. Yeah, and actually, the book is a really good way to network with people because. One of the things that I'm doing is like I'll go on LinkedIn and I'll pull like all the blockchain people that um, are working at like Fortune 500 companies or something like that. And I'll just like ask them all if I can send them a free book, you know, and I'll like write them a handwritten note and be like, hey, like if this if this is useful to you at all, like I hope you enjoy it. Like no expectations. It's just like a, it's like it's just nice. And especially now with COVID, too, there's no more meetups. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's so cool. And I mean, you know, uh, how do I ask the question, right? Like, what gave you the gall to do that? You know, like, like so many people are often stuck on like, I don't even know where to begin on those things. Where did that come forward for you, Kiara? I think the big question that is was in my mind, and is it's sort of come up multiple times in my life is like, who gave me permission And, you know, no one has ever given me permission to do anything that I've ever wanted to do. (laughs) So I think you have to like let go of the permission thing. But there is sort of this like parent in everyone's mind where it's like, no, no, like, you know, like having this self doubt as to whether or not it's socially acceptable or whether or not it's okay. But I've sent so many cold emails out and I get this insane positive response rate and people are sort of like afraid of like rejection or failure. But you'd be surprised of how many people are just like flattered that you like want to say hi to them and like give them something for free or talk to them or are interested in the same topic as them or have yeah. thought of them enough to to research their career and tell them that you think it's interesting yeah as long as they're genuine i'll i'll answer those types of emails all day long you can usually cut through the the crap for instance on linkedin and the like pretty quickly when it's just you know formulaic but uh, you know, I, I, I still go back to that. I'm still blown away by this. Uh, I'll call him a kid because I'm old and he was like 17, but he just reached out to me. He's like, Grant, I'm really interested in NLP. Can, can I have 30 minutes of your time? I had just a fantastic conversation with this high school senior about NLP. I think he was in Texas of all places. So <laughs> I, like, I, I will answer that stuff all day long because I love it. And I love the curiosity. I mean, it's not always practical, but um, and I, not, I love- something doesn't always come of it. Like that's happened to me too on LinkedIn where like a college kid is like, wow, you're the only person doing education in this space. Like, are there any companies doing this? And I had a one hour conversation with someone just like that. Um, yeah, those are the best, <laughs> even yeah. if nothing happens after that. 
Well, I, I do have to ask one thing on your profile is Bickers and Son, which, you know, I get the last name in there. But I, as, as we were talking offline, there's just a lovely heartwarming story here. So tell tell uh, give a little bit more background as to your your publishing house that published your book. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm just like I view life as this like big experiment and I like to create meaning a, as much as possible. And, you know, for me, I think it's not even just about doing something meaningful. I like to stack and layer meaning. So it's like I have this book, which is like totally unrelated to my family and all this stuff. But my I, my grandfather, he would always tell me this story about how um, in before World War Two, his whole family was supported off of Bickers and Son, the printing press. And he would just tell me how it was one of the first printing presses, uh, like publishing houses in, in London and how, you know, he, he had just fascinating stories about it, including how it was bombed during the blitz of world war two and how he was a young kid and he saw his uncle die in the building and he had to run away like literally that day, get on a ship. His mother thought he died in the building and he didn't get to tell her until he got to land to give her a call. <laughs> and like mm. He was really heartbroken about like, it was, it was such a messed up story, but it was so meaningful to him that when I wrote the book, even though I self published it, you know, I needed to create like a company entity to do that. So I named it Bickers and son. And I said, like, I'm bringing back the publishing house, like, of Bickers and Son in honor of my grandfather and like all my ancestors recursively type thing. And, you know, it seems kind of silly, but it, it really made his, it probably made more than his day. He liked that a lot. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I love the notion of layering meaning. I did this in my book as well, which is I just like little Easter eggs all throughout that mm -hmm. tie back to like my hometown or sports teams I like, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like a fun way to embed like some of your own DNA into the very thing you're creating. It just uh, even it fresh the whole time. Yeah, for sure. Kiara, being conscious of your time, I have so many great things in this conversation. What are you excited to learn next? You know, especially for somebody who's following your curiosity, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, so I sort of hinted at it, but right now my fascination was is with studying old myths and and actually understanding history because I feel like I don't know if this is just like I don't know if this is just a point in my life, but I feel like I never understood history well and it's becoming really apparent that if I understood history better, I could predict the future better. So, for me right now, I'm just reading old myths. I'm trying to read all of history. And what I mean by all of history is like, I'm trying to, I, I have a fairly narrow lane of like Western history. I have this Excel spreadsheet where I plot out, you know, everything that happened within this like five year time frame, And then I link it up with the next one. And I want to turn it into a children's book, I think, where you could, you know, read aloud stories from old myths in a way that's chronological. Uh, I'm interested in education. So I think in, in some way, it's not clear how, but in some way, I think, you know, both with educating myself, I want to, I want to figure out how to, how to, how to make the move into educating other people too, and how to give people, continue to give people mental models about more complex topics than just Bitcoin. Yeah, I love it. We're way off script now, but what's a, what's an old myth that you think is relevant to people these days and you could layer into to some of the things I think we are thinking about in tech? I, I won't go so much into the big, broader political realm, but sure. in this realm of 
say cryptocurrencies or technology in general? What's a, what's an old myth that you I, think is relevant? I don't know if I can fit it into technology, but I will say, so I've been reading about the Trojan War and there's sort of like this side secondary character. Her name's Cassandra. And Cassandra was, you know, doomed by the gods to always be able to see the future, but never be able to have anyone believe her. And I just thought that was so poetic. And I was like, isn't it funny where it's like, you know, we call them conspiracy theorists today. You know? <laughs> and, so, and maybe in Bitcoin, I feel as if I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but it's like, no, the financial system, like it's really, it's, it's, not, it's not right. Like you can't just keep printing money. And I said that over and over again for years. And it's sort of like this slow death, right? And even though you can prophesize the future, even though you think you're right, no one will believe you. That that's the lesson that I got from Cassandra and the Trojan War. So I thought that was really that was really fun <laughs> that the Greeks got that already. Yeah, or maybe I think we're just all scared of what happens on the other side of that. Uh, yeah, and so we we want to be in denial on it. But that's a whole nother show, probably a whole nother podcast, uh, <laughs> Kiara. So well, I love talking to you. This was great. I I know it's so fantastic. I want you to, two final questions. I want to ask you to put on your mentoring hat for a moment and, and share with us, you know, as you look back on all of this, what's your best career advice besides go hack Stanford by being in the catering department? <laughs> I think it would be to be ruthlessly curious about and about whatever it is you're actually curious about. To think about projects more than jobs and, you know, to be a doer. To, to, to be self-motivated, that's really my philosophy, you know, boiled down to a couple sentences. What's a practical way that you've developed that? Because, you know, like, so, you know, some people, I, I don't know that it's inherent in anybody so much as they often get rewarded by it and or they, they create some of it. Like, what are some practical tips that you find are helpful for you at least staying true to that, that uh, guiding light? Well, a good way to know if you're curious about something is if you're willing to research it without being prompted. Now, there's like a large proportion of people who that doesn't apply to, but all of the people who it does apply to are called nerds. Like a nerd is defined by someone who's like interested in, in just like collecting information and knowledge, right? That's how I think of it. And if you're a nerd and you're interested in something, the next step from that is to give yourself permission to be to be a part of that interest, you know, to have an active role in the interest. And I could go back to me making this paper wallet app. It was so funny because, you know, I put all this work into it. I even cared about the UX. So it wasn't just like a developer thing. But when I got to the job that I eventually did get, one of the first things they say to me, like some of the cryptographers just like totally stone cold is all of the underlying libraries used are broken. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I should probably remove that. Like, it, it was like, I, I, I gave myself permission to do the thing. I did the thing without knowing that, like, there were some things that were done poorly. And they're like, don't worry, all the underlying libraries and everything is pretty much broken. We just thought you should know. <laughs> it's okay to fail. <laughs> <laughs> but I still did the thing and it was still like a cool project. And, you know, it ultimately like people just, yeah, they need to give themselves permission to try it, even though you fail. People still respect that. Yeah. Well, and I, I'll, I'll throw in my own two cents on one thing in here and you were actually doing this as well. And I, I often have to remind myself this, which is 
reading and going back, you know, chances are somebody's written about at least some of these things and or you have an expert at, at your fingertips who has culminated all of their life's knowledge into 300 pages and all you have to do is sit down and work through it. And it's, that it's will feed your curiosity. Yeah, that'll feed your curiosity all day long. So, and I often, I, I often find myself, I have to remind myself of that. Kiara, this has been amazing. I love the self-guided nature. I love the just the <laughs> the little life hacks in there, as well as just the earnestness of following your curiosity. Last question for you: Where can our listeners best connect with you? Where can they buy the book? How else can they engage with you? Yeah. So if people want to download all the mental models from my head, I think the the book is the best way to do that. That's on Amazon. I also pay, post on Twitter. So I, I like to I like to be a part of the collective consciousness on Twitter. So you could probably Google me and Google me on, on Amazon or Google me. At, it's not really a Google if it's on Amazon, huh? You can search Kiara Bickers on Amazon or on Twitter and you can find me in both of those places. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, as always, we'll link those up in the show notes. Kiara, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day to join us here on Developmentor. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.